good afternoon. This is WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You're listening to Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections, on the air every Sunday at noon. We are a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and not the radio station. And we were just listening to a great piece by Ralph. Thank you, Ralph, for that. (laughs) Have a wonderful afternoon. Um, So I'm Marisa Nielsen, and I'm here in the studio with Corey Sorensen. Last week, uh, you heard from Becca Polk and Corey, who were sharing interviews with their students from Springfield and Guilford, Vermont, on the changing of Columbus Day to Indigenous Peoples Day. Today, in celebration of Educational Praxis's uh, weekend-long Institute on Education, we'll be analyzing our current Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos. But first, we will hear a song, um, and we'll be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back. You are listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, Brattleboro Community Radio Station. Today, you're listening to uh, me, Marisa Nielsen, and Corey Sorensen discussing Betsy DeVos, um, who is making education not as easy as 123 ABC. Um, it's a very complex matter. Corey, can you tell us a little bit about what is happening right now with Secretary DeVos? Yeah, so it's important to know that Betsy DeVos is a, a Michigan billionaire who her, the bulk of her uh, work as education secretary has been to mainstream her school choice ideas. And as she goes and speaks about promoting school choice, expanding the charter schools, which are publicly funded but privately operated, uh, she's also met with protest and resistance. Mm. Some of the things that she's doing currently and after six months of uh, being education secretary is that she and Trump have advanced a school uh, pro-school choice 2018 budget, which seeks broad funding cuts while pushing proposals to spend about $400 million to expand charter schools and vouchers for private and religious schools and an additional $1 billion to push public schools to adopt school choice-friendly policies. Uh, it's also thought that they will push a federally funded tax credit program during any overhaul of the tax code. Hmm. So while she is clearly pushing the school choice. She also has uh, other things that she's been doing, uh, such as, um, well, she, she's, backed the, she's backed the administration's decision to rescind guidance from the Obama administration that was aimed at protecting the rights of transgender students mm -hmm. and directed the department's Office for Civil Rights to consider transgender students' discrimination complaints on a case-by-case -case basis. So mm -hmm. she's been just awful for the LGBTQ community in education. Mm -hmm. uh, she supported President Trump for pulling the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord. Um, and she is also, uh, she tapped the chief executive of a private student loan company to run the federal government's trillion-dollar financial aid operations. So she's making it a lot uh, more difficult for, uh, for students in higher education to receive loans and to pay off their fees. Wow. Isn't she also, I heard her last night talking about how she's um, allowing states to make their own choices in how to educate students with disabilities. Is That's that right. true? And so with some of the resistance to that, though, uh, for example, recently in Cambridge, Massachusetts, there were hundreds of protesters that gathered outside a Harvard University forum where uh, she was delivering a speech on school choice. And they were holding banners and posters that said white supremacist and our students are not for sale. Uh, the protesters opposed DeVos's efforts to privatize public schools and roll back civil rights and sexual violence protections for millions of students. Mm -hmm. So one Harvard graduate student, Jeff Rosette, confronted DeVos in the Q&A after her speech, and I just wanted to read the question that he uh, asked her. He said, hi, my name is Jeff Rosette. I'm a master in public administration student here at the Kennedy School. So you're a billionaire with lots and lots of investments, and the so-called school choice movement is a way to open the floodgates for corporate interests to make money off the backs of students. 
How much do you expect your net worth to increase as a result of your policy choices? And what are your friends on Wall Street and the business world, like the coach? Coke Co- brothers. Coke. I've never known how to pronounce that. Mm. Saying about the potential to get rich off the backs of students. So DeVos fired back quickly. I have written lots of checks to give parents and students lots of options to the school of their choice. The balance on my income has gone very much the other way. Hmm. That's so interesting, Corey. I think um, for our listeners, it might be important to hear a little bit about where DeVos is coming from um, because she does have a very interesting history of being involved in politics. Um, She grew up in Holland, Michigan, a town where there are laws about how high your grass can be and where streets are heated so snowflakes melt upon falling um, and where if a fence or shed looks too run down, the town can take it down and bill the owner. Um, and it's a town where whistling and yelling is still outlawed in in the evening (laughs) hours. So this is where DeVos grew up. Um, her brother is Eric Prince, who's the founder of Blackwater, the private security contractor that's accused of overbilling and, uh, human rights abuses during the Iraq war. Um, he currently now advises Trump on intelligence and defense. And her family has a long history of heavy spending for right-wing causes. Um, They've given at least $200 million since the 1970s to think tanks, media outlets, political committees, and advocacy groups um, that support right-wing causes, Um, Christian groups. um, They have support for vouchers for private and religious schools. um, And... They're, they built their fortune um, through Amway, which is among the best-known multi-level marketing companies in the world. Um, so it's a uh, kind of like a pyramid scheme marketing uh, company um, where uh, they got lots and lots and lots of money from people who were selling products to other people. Um, so that's how they sort of made their fortune. Um, DeVos entered politics early. Um, She supported Gerald Ford um, in the election that he lost. Um, And in 93, she supported um, the Michigan Governor Angler, who in 93, he um, eradicated property taxes in Michigan altogether, um, completely defunding Michigan's $6.5 billion public education system. Um, so as that whole crisis unfolded after he did that, um, he, with the support of DeVos, um, began legalizing charter schools. Um, so I think it's important to know where she comes from and what kind of ideology she comes from. Um, Holland, Michigan is where, uh, many Dutch reformists settled a long ago and that, uh, very Christian, um, right um still still sort of habits that area today yeah wow who'd ever thought of uh heated streets where the snowflakes melt i know i'm sure that's sort of an environmental problem right there (laughs) um so we're going to take another quick uh song break and then we're going to talk more about the history of devos what's behind her she's not unique really um although she's doing really terrible things to public education right now things were already bad in under the obama administration Um, So we'll go to a song by Manu Chow. Um, It's called Politic Kills, and then we'll come right back. Thanks so much.
Politik need votes. Politik needs your mind. Politik needs human beings. Politik need lies. That's why, my friend, it's an evidence. Politik is violence. Why, my friend, it's an evidence. Politik is violence. Drugs, politic use bombs, politic need torpedoes, politic needs blood. That's why, my friend, it's an evidence. Politic is violence. Why, my friend, it's an evidence. Politic is violence. Politic need force, force. Politic need cries. Politic need ignorance. Politic need lies. Politic kills, politic kills, politic kills. Politic kills, politic kills, politic kills. Politic kills, politic kills, politic kills. Politic kills, politic kills. Okay, that was Politic Kills by Manu Chow, and you're listening to Indigo Radio, uh, deepening understanding and making connections. Today we're talking about uh, Betsy DeVos and the legacy of market-driven policies in education. Um, and I just think, Corey, that song, I was just thinking about those lyrics, that it, politic needs ignorance and lies. That's a lot of what Betsy DeVos is um, perpetuating here. And different ideology. You know, I'm sure she does not think that it's ignorance and lies, but um, I think for our everyday people, it sure is. Right. And looking back at who Betsy DeVos is and at this clear agenda of the direction that she wants education to go in, it's clear where her interests lie. So let's go a little bit further into that um, history of where um, our education system is going. Sure. So we're going to listen to a clip right now from Bill Moyer speaking with Diane Ravitch. Um, They're talking about the amount of money that is in public education um, and how hedge fund managers and private equity investors are entering what they consider to become be an emerging market, this public education becoming an emerging market. Um, so let's listen to their conversation for just a few moments, and then we'll, we'll discuss. Are we ready, Corey? Um, I just I need, to, I need to pull up the right. All right. Well, while Corey is pulling that up, just a little bit about Diane Rabbit. She used to be four. Um, charter schools, and then had a great realization that this would be hurting lots of children, most severely um, children living in poverty and children of color. Um, she supported the No Child Left Behind initiative, but then changed her mind. 
um, and has become, according to Salon Magazine, the nation's highest profile opponent of charter-based education, which I'm not sure that I agree with. I think that there are lots of um, opponents of charter-based education. Wayne Au is another one who we've spoken to before on this program. Um, he's an editor of Rethinking Schools as well. There's, there's a lot of us. Um, are we ready, Corey? Yep, we're All ready. Right. Your retirement company. Welcome. Charter schools are booming and controversial. There are now more than 6,000 across the country, double the number from just a decade ago. They're publicly funded, but privately run. And whatever you think about the merit of charter schools versus public schools, merit is no longer driving the debate. What's driving the debate is money. The charter movement is now part of the growing privatization of public education, and Wall Street sees an emerging market. Take a look at this piece published last fall on Forbes.com. Quote, dozens of bankers, hedge fund types, and private equity investors gathered to discuss investing in for-profit education companies. There's a potential gold rush here. Public education from kindergarten through high school pulls in more than $500 billion in taxpayer revenues every year. And crony capitalists and politicians alike are cashing in. Example, in Ohio, two firms, both contributors to Republicans, operate 9% of the state's charter schools and are collecting 38% of the state's charter school funding increase. In Philadelphia, a Democratic stronghold, 23 public schools closed for good last summer to be replaced by charters. Here in New York City, progressive mayor Bill de Blasio set out to curb the charter school poaching of public education. But in recent weeks, the charter movement, bankrolled by wealthy financiers, struck back hard with the media campaign costing more than three and a half million dollars. These are the 194 faces of Success Academies. My daughter would have a better opportunity at a charter school. Mayor de Blasio wants to stop them from opening and expanding. I voted for de Blasio, but I didn't vote for you to take my child's future. Under this withering assault, Mayor de Blasio has turned conciliatory, determined, according to the New York Times, to avoid the wrath of a well-financed charter school movement even dialing up billionaires personally asking for a truce. The private buying of public education has brought a piercing cry of alarm for my guest. Once a champion of charter schools, she's changed her mind, and that was a reversal that struck home with a seismic wallop. Diane Ravitch is our preeminent historian of education. She's worked for presidents from both parties and served as an assistant secretary of education. She's a scholar with a popular following. In the last year alone, her website has received more than 8 million visits. Her teaching, writing, and advocacy have long influenced our debate about schools and the public policies that affect them. And her latest book is a bestseller, Reign of Era, The Hoax of the Privatization Movement and the Danger to America's Public Schools. Diane Ravitch, welcome. It's wonderful to be with you, Bill. We're talking about big money, aren't we? Absolutely. At minimum, at least... From the estimates I've seen, it's a market of $500 billion. Now, a year? Uh, yes, an annual market of $500 billion. So the entrepreneurs do see it as huge opportunities to make money. There are now frequently conferences, at least annually conferences, on how to profit from the public education industry. Now, I never thought of public education as an industry 
but the entrepreneurs do see it as an industry. They see it as, as a national marketplace uh, for hardware, for software, for textbook publishing, for selling whatever it is they're selling, and for actually taking over uh, all of the uh, roles of running a school. This is what the charter movement is. is an effort to privatize public education uh, because there's so much money there that uh, enough of it can be extracted to pay off the investors. But I think what's at stake is the future of American public education. I'm a graduate of public schools in Houston, Texas, and I don't want to see us lose public education. I believe it is the foundation stone, one of the foundation stones of our democracy. So an attack on public education is an attack on democracy. That was Diane Ravitch. Um, and I should just let you know that that interview was done in 2014. Um, he talks about, Bill Moyers talks about Mayor de Blasio and how he was against charter schools until so much money was um, pushed into um, his city um, by the, the charter school movement um, that he sort of reversed his idea and called up those billionaires personally. Um, they talk a lot about um, this privatization. And I, I just would say, too, that this is not just about a privatization of um, schools, but about the privatization of curriculum, of land. Um, I would say that we don't really have public space anymore. Um, everything is privatized now. But um, the push to have big corporations own um, our public education is is huge. Um, for example, Pearson is a corporation that has $8.2 billion in revenues. Um, they control every element of the process of education from teacher qualification to curriculum to the tests used to evaluate students to the grading of those tests and uh, owning and operating its own learning institutions. Um, Corey, thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I was just going to say that <clears throat> Looking at education as an opportunity to make money isn't a new thing. And with these uh, companies like Pearson going in and writing the tests, writing the curriculum, and continuing to profit off of education while it still is public isn't surprising. It also, with policies such as Nickelback and Race to the Top that um, allow failing schools to be administered by private corporations are converted into charter schools. It's a way to, to look at data that's collected by these programs and say and determine whether a school is failing or whether a school is not. So it gives this impression to the public that private is seen as good and public is seen as bad. And mm -hmm. that private schools can, you'll, your child will have more opportunities to perform well in, either in these different curriculums or just in schooling in general. Uh, it encourages people that to, instead of asking, like, what do we want from public education from all students, it encourages people to ask, which school should I choose for my child? Which school is going to give my child a better education? Mm. And Julie Matuzik, who um, was quoted in Politico magazine, um, who was then the American Federation of Teachers' top political hand in the state, says... If all you do is transfer the money, you don't transfer any of the other requirements that are put on public schools. Public schools are required to take everyone who comes through the door, but private schools, parochial schools get to pick and choose. So it's not really the parents who have the choice, it's the schools. Um, 
I think that's really important to, yeah. to note. It really isn't a parent choice. It's the um, corporation's choice or the um, parochial school's choice um, to decide what kind of school and what kind of education they're giving, yeah. um, which is not right. Um, Corey, um, returning back a little bit to Betsy DeVos, um, she's not only working against public schools, um, she's also against unions. Um, she has been um, advo an advocate for right-to-work laws that are now in the books in 27 states. Um, she has been anti-teachers' uh, unions. Um, in January of 2016, when Detroit educators demanded a audit of their district's finances, um, and they were protesting their classrooms plagued by mold, roaches, and rodents. They use sick days to make their point because um, they have been barred from striking. But right after they did that, DeVos wrote a Detroit News op-ed arguing that teachers shouldn't be allowed to stage sick outs either. Um, so she's very anti uh, labor union. I would say not just teachers unions, but labor unions in, in general. Yeah, well, that just goes back to this agenda of blaming the educators, blaming the teachers. And of course, she's going to blame or she's going to be upset with teachers unions because they're protecting public schools. Mm -hmm. Clearly, that's what she doesn't want to exist. Right. Um, Corey, I also want to broaden this a little bit beyond um, maybe what some people think is a Republican agenda, because this is not just about uh, Betsy DeVos, and it's not just about the Republicans. Right. Um, Democratic politicians are proponents of, by and large, of privatization and marketization in public schools. Um, for example, Cory Booker, um, who is very opposed to DeVos, founded the Newark Charter School Fund and has a huge history of supporting charters and local vouchers. Um, six out of the 10 Democrats on the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pension Committee have attended or have their own children or grandchildren in charter schools or private schools. So this is not a Republican issue. Um, and um, our friend Wayne Au, who we talked about earlier, he is an activist who lives in Seattle, said if, if DeVos weren't confirmed, the next person up would also have been terrible. Don't romanticize the past. The last eight years of education policy under Obama have also been about cementing free market reforms, the destruction of public education, and attacks mm -hmm. on communities of color through those reforms. Charters, choice, testing, anti-union, mayoral control, school closings, et cetera, et cetera. So yes, DeVos is like those reforms on steroids, and she has some particularly retrograde cultural politics, but the policy trajectory is clear, and the logics are consistent with Duncan and Obama. Duncan was the education secretary under Obama. Um, however, um, Wayne Au says that there is an upside. So because of many of DeVos's policies fundamentally align with what the Democrats and liberals have been pushing for the last eight years, um, this DeVos confirmation forces those people to justify their positions and either distinguish themselves apart from DeVos or just go ahead and admit that they are in alignment with her um, at clearly potentially a great political cost. So that's again from Wayne Au. Um, I think it's just very important to know that this is not a new thing. Uh, this is not a Republican thing. This is a private um, 
a private push that in, infiltrates our elite class. This is corp. This is corporate-driven educational policies, and corporations aren't on the sides of Republicans or Democrats. They're on. They're just going to do whatever supports their interests, and it's it's big money, like we were saying earlier. And this isn't new. This has been happening since well, the '80s has been more market-driven approaches um, in education, and there's huge consequences for these educational policies um, that we've touched on throughout this show. Uh, but from, I'm looking at a article by Nancy Schneiderwind, who wrote about a short history of the ambush of public education, and she lists out some of these consequences in a pretty clear way of what does this mean, corporate-driven educational policies, and I'll just read off some of these and talk about them. Maybe we can have a conversation. Mm -hmm. One of them being that schools will narrow both the curriculum and accountability measures, pressuring teachers to teach to the test. Mm -hmm. This is, in my three years of teaching, this has been so clear what our focus is, and it's on literacy and math curriculum with less focus on the arts, less focus on music, less focus on social studies and science. Marissa, yeah. do you have any thoughts on that? Well, and I think additionally, if you have private corporations or hedge funds or family funds um, controlling education, you can teach whatever you want um, or whatever these people who are controlling it want. So if you have an evangelicalist in power, then you're going to be teaching that. Um, so it's not based on what communities want. It's based on the ideology of those who rule and control Consequently, excellent teachers are leaving the profession. I've heard mm -hmm. floating around that it's something like fi um, five years. In five years, about 50% of teachers are dropping out of their career. Um, here's a quote from the book about teachers who have, who whose professionalism has been undermined. Um, one teacher said, I'm a thinking person. Now I'm not asked to think as part of my job. I'm passionately committed to good education, and I'm left out of the loop of educational decision-making. People who are closest to students aren't asked for their opinions. Those things associated with job satisfaction have disappeared. Yeah, I mean, teachers' hands are tied, right? Um, not only is the curriculum oftentimes just planned and scripted out, and you're required at every moment of the day to be teaching at a particular page um, exactly from the book, but also this anti-union piece, too. If right. you can't unionize, um, then how can you stand up for what you know is right as a teacher? I think those two go hand in hand. Yeah, young people are directly hurt by these policies. Um, even if it's just the psychological costs of test-driven educational policies, um, students experiencing fear, anger, and pain from the constant pressures to do well on the tests. Yeah, and I would go a little further. I would say that um, these measures disproportionately affect um, students of color and students living in poverty, um, right. that this push of standardized testing um, as well as testing high-stakes testing, which is testing that's linked to teacher performance. And also linked to students who are drop, dropping, dropping out, out or yeah. being pushed out and connects to the school-to-prison pipeline, especially for students of color mm -hmm. who wouldn't perform well on a test. And these tests combined with zero-tolerance tolerance policies, the no-child-gets-left-behind or the race to the top, mm -hmm. it feeds the school-to-prison pipeline, another extremely profitable industry. 
Um, and this happens, we're not talking about some place far away. We're talking about here in Brattleboro right. too, right, Corey? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know statistics of dropouts in the high school. Um, I'm not certain. That I don't have the numbers right here, Corey, but I, I know that it um, also reflects a disproportionate number of students of color dropping out or being expelled or suspended um, than, than white students. Right. And just as we've repeated over and over again that this business model that's taking over education is making huge profits for private corporations. Mm -hmm. So at what cost are those private corporations making profits? Who are they making profits mm -hmm. off of? <laughs> yeah, I think this is a good time to go to a song break, Corey. Um, yeah. And then we'll come back and talk a little bit about who benefits from this. Um, the song that we're going to play right now is called No Privatization, Irish Water, Irish Nation. And we'll be back in a few minutes. No privatization, Irish water, Irish nation, no privatization. Irish water 
Right, we the DJs at WVEW echo the soulful greetings of our own twisted soul sister. Our thanks go out to the Chocolate City Show for its generous underwriting support. So welcome back. This is Indigo Radio at 107.7 FM. Um, you just heard before Chocolate City. Thanks so much, Chocolate City. You just heard a song um, called No Privatization, Irish Water, Irish Na- Nation, um, which is a song that opposes the privatization of water in Dublin. Um, the group was uh, playing at the rally of the Right to Water campaign in Dublin, um, and I think that there is such a connection to the privatization of water and the privatization of our schools. Um, we talked a little bit earlier before the break about who benefits. Um, this is private corporations just uh, leaching the resources, um, both water and of our children, um, into their sort of manipulating them into their workers. Um, so. We wanted to connect our show on Betsy DeVos to what's happening here locally. Um, Our friend Kelly uh, just let us know that our district has a 17% dropout rate. Um, So we're not talking about something that's so separate and unique. We're talking about right here locally as well. Um, So although most of our public education is paid for by local and state tax dollars, um, 90% of it, um, the other 10% is paid for by the federal, um, government. Um, but that doesn't mean that the decisions made by the government don't affect public education. So for example, um, companies that profit off charter schools force public schools to shut down. So when children are taken out of those public schools, they're 
uh, they go to the charter schools, and then those public institutions shut down because they don't have enough pupils to run the school. Um, another example is if a public school sto scores low on standardized tests, its funding might be cut, and it might be forced to show how it's working to reach a certain percent proficiency. Um, which, by the way, that proficiency rate is really unrealistic. Most um, people say that you should have at least like an 80% proficiency rate, but test companies, um, the SBAC, for example, was created so that only 60% of children would be proficient. Oh, so wow. it, it doesn't, I mean, it, it, you're set out to fail, basically. So if a test is created so that only 60% of children should be proficient, but you're expecting 80% of your schools to be proficient, 80% of your children to be proficient, um, you're always going to be behind. You're always going to be in that catch-up phase. So um, then most of the time you have to prove like, okay, so if not 80% of our um, school children are meeting this proficient standard, um, you have to show, well, what are you doing in order to reach that? And oftentimes it's canned curriculum um, curriculum that comes in boxes and typically owned by for-profit co corporations like Pearson um, are said to be the solution. Um, so we've seen this in this very district, actually. So schools that have not demonstrated um, high enough proficiency in reading, such as Vernon, Putney, Oak Grove, Guilford, and Green Street, are now required to use Reading Street, which is a Pearson-owned um, curriculum that costs about $5,000 per classroom. So for example, in Vernon, there are two fourth grades, and it's about $5,000 for each of us to have a set of this um, curriculum. It claims to reach all the Common Core standards, um, but in my opinion, uh, as a teacher there, it dumbs down instructions. Um, it's disjointed. It includes several racist text, texts, um, and it's highly tracked as well. Um, so using curriculum like that to show that you're, you know, trying to meet this proficiency rate that might never exist, um, I, I think it's it's just, it's a contradiction and it doesn't work. Um, in comparison, schools like Dummerston, where residents pay more out of pocket per pupil um, for per pupil expenditure, don't have to use Reading Street um, because their test scores prove that their instruction in reading is working. And I put prove in quotes because I, I really don't think that it's based on what were, um, you know, the quality of the teachers. I think it's based on um, the economy of the local town. Right. I think it's really eye-opening to when you were talking about how um, the SBAC, for example, was created to have an average of 60% proficiency that these things are set up for students to fail. I feel like I've heard a narrative of maybe the 17% dropout rate would be explained by well, teachers aren't doing well enough to get those test scores up. Mm -hmm. But there's always going to be a percentage of the students who are in the red or in the, in the lower, gr lower groups or tracked groups. Mm -hmm. And I, th I think purposefully there are students that are in that group. Right. Yeah, I would agree. Um, and yeah, I would agree with that, Corey. Um, what are your thoughts on that, actually? The... the um, those triangles of red and yellow and green and how they relate to our topic today on privatization and well <laughs> my thoughts on the triangles of red and yellow and green well it's just that if you think of schools as 
as places where students are taught skills for the workforce that they're going into. I think of these trying, uh, you look at who's in the red and yellow in the schools and in my three or four years of being in this district, a lot of times it's kids who are coming from poor families who are in the lower tracts. And um, I don't think the level of education that they're receiving in those, when they're being pulled out is the same as the other kids. So I don't, my thoughts on this maybe are jumbled in my head right now, but it seems like it kind of sets up, um, it kind of sets up, while the idea is supposed to be that those kids who are in the yellow and red are being targeted for interventions and instruction to help them catch up, it seems like they're getting further and further behind. Mm. So, and I see that as a connection between this idea of privatization, the, the both the curriculum and the, um, the way that we analyze test scores too um, and the types of tests that we teach are tracking students from kindergarten or now actually sometimes in preschool. Um, right. And oftentimes those children stay in the red and the yellow and the green. So you're tracking them yeah, from, from five years old onward. Um, and you were talking about in the workforce too. So it's sort of a, a replication of this class-based society. Is right. that what you're saying? Yeah, I think that's exactly what I'm saying. Like, what kinds of jobs are those kids going to have after they get out of school? Mm-hmm. Or will they be, will they have jobs? Whereas an alternative might be um, having heter- more heter- heterogeneous groups, having curriculum that's linked to children's daily lives and the lives of real people around the world, um, including texts that are not whitewashed or dumbed down, um, having rich language in our texts and... Um, learn, you know, teaching in our classrooms that we're learning from one another um, and no one is above anybody else. Right. Um, exactly. One other connection we wanted to make was to Puerto Rico. Um, after Puerto Rico defaulted on the loans that I believe they never should have been forced to take, um, their government went into receivership. So this... Um, this receivership catalyzed the push for privatization of schools and the closing of hundreds of public schools. Um, Julia Kelleher, the Washington-based consultant who was named Secretary of Education in Puerto Rico after this um, default, um, took control of the school system this past January 2017. She's closing down over 100 schools just this year with more expected to close soon. I would also connect this to the increase of privatization around the globe and the dominant um, Western imperialism that's sort of spreading this privatization all over. Pearson, too, by the way, um, is becoming more and more um, electronically based and web based and has, um, you know, has its outreach in all, I think, I think almost all continents, I would have to check on that, um, with things like iPad-based teaching where um, you're given teachers in, say, Uganda an iPad with a script that they're supposed to read off of um, every day uh-huh. as well. So, um, I know that. so it's widespread, it's local, um, it's all around us. Corey, should we play maybe one more song and then we'll come back and do a little resistance because there is so much resistance to this movement of privatization. As there should be. As there should be. Thank you. Um, trying to find what's How is the about, next song. Um, well, we have our friend Nina Simone. 
Uh, Nina. Here she is. This is Nina Simone, young, gifted, and black. After I skip this intro. That was Nina Simone, Young, Gifted, and Black. You're listening to Indigo Radio, 107.7 FM, Brattleboro, um, your community radio station. We are streaming every Sunday noon to 1, and you can also find us on Facebook um, or Instagram, right, Corey? Yeah, you can. (laughs) All right. Um, (laughs) So we wanted to end with some resistance that's happening right now against Betsy DeVos and this privatization movement. Um, We had wished to be able to speak with Wayne Al, who we've talked about a couple of times on this show. He's a wonderful um, education activist who lives in Seattle. He was not able to interview with us because this Friday um, he was part of organizing um, a huge protest against Betsy DeVos in Seattle. Um, I think it's going to be one of the... 
was, I believe, one of the largest protests against um, her policies um, in the recent in the recent weeks. Um, other things that have been happening in resistance to her have been um, as long ago as 2000, she and her husband had helped underwrite a ballot initiative to introduce vouchers in Michigan. They poured millions of dollars into this effort. And even with all of those dollars that they poured into this effort, 69% of voters rejected it. Um, and I think this also is um, you can see this happening like in Massachusetts, for example, last year, 2016, um, there was a huge push to, um, for the charter school movement in Massachusetts. Um, they were demonizing the Massachusetts public schools and pouring thousands and thousands of dollars into um, advertising for charter schools against um, public schools. And Massachusetts voters overwhelmingly rejected um, that expansion of charter schools in 2016. So I, I just I think it's important to just note some historic examples and current examples of, of resistance. What were you going to say, Corey? <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I had anything to say exactly to that. But just that additionally, teachers in classrooms all over uh, the United States are resisting this ambush of public education. Um, reading through this um, compilation of essays uh, put together by Nancy Schneiderwind and Mara Sapin-Shevin, the book is called Educational Courage, Resisting the Ambush of Public Education. It's just inspiring to read through um, teachers who are writing about what they're doing in their own classrooms. Um, from saying no to the for, to standardized tests to um, debunking cases of national standards and quitting Teach for America, mm. um, speaking out against test prep, just these kinds of acts and essays that teachers are writing and movements. And this movement has to come from educators, but not just educators alone. It should come from families, uh, from children, from people to resist this movement. Right. And I would say, too, if you're interested in joining this movement, Brattleboro Solidarity is a um, huge advocate. And so <laughs> just this past weekend, we um, Educational Praxis and Brattleboro Solidarity had a weekend-long workshop on um, teaching social justice in the classroom and uh, also discussing what we do in our communities and beyond as well. Um, so you can also find events like that on Brattleboro Solidarity and Indigo Radio's Facebook page um, yeah. as well. Yeah, find Indigo Radio on Facebook if you have not already. Find Brattleboro Solidarity on Facebook. Message us, get to know us, come to events, to study groups and study with us. Yeah, and uh, we'd love to hear your, your feedback, too. Absolutely. Corey, I think that we should end with a song that we started on, <laughs> Lift Our Spirits in Resistance. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? Absolutely. Fantastic. Let's do it. So we're going to start, we're going to end with uh, the Jackson 5 singing ABC. I think so. Let's do it. All right. Can never Thanks have so enough much Jackson 5. For listening. Um, once again, this is Indigo Radio on Brattleboro Community Radio Station 1077 FM. We will see you next week.